Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. The bottom of page 911. And basically, he explains that based on the introduction of the previous six chapters, we can understand the statement of the Zohar. The Zohar says that there are two levels of in the unity of God. Now, if the unity of God means that there's only one God, or there's only one power or one force, and God is the only one who has exclusive power, and no one has any independent force or power other than God, and that the world is like a tool in the hands of the axe in the hands of the builder, then what could the Zohar possibly mean? There's only, there's, there's only one unity. <laughs> God is one, period. What do you mean two levels of unity? Based on what he explained till now, that the creation is an ongoing process, creation is a dynamic, vibrant process, and therefore the, everything that's created, all existence is really nullified in existence because since it's totally dependent on the divine creative energy, it has nothing on its own. Therefore, all it really is, all it really is, is a reflection of the divine ability to create. And therefore, it really doesn't exist. It's not, it's, it's, its entire being is nothing other than the divine essence, than its source. Just like a light, light from the sun. Light has no independent reality. Why is it when the sun sets, the light disappears automatically? Light cannot exist for one second without its source. You can't see the sun, you can't see the light. Why? Because light is not an independent, light has nothing of its own. Light, everything the light has is from the sun. Therefore, it's entirely dependent on the sun. So since we are entirely dependent on God, on the divine creative energy to constantly create us, so we have nothing on our own. We have no meaning. We have nothing other than we are an expression, a reflection of God's ability to create. That's our only content. That's our only meaning. We have no other meaning. There's nothing else to us. Because inherently, innately, essentially, we are absolutely nothing. We simply don't exist. We don't exist within the source. There's no, there's no physical water in God. There's no... We don't physically exist, nothing, we don't exist in the source. So inherently, innately, we are absolutely nothing. All of creation, all of existence, including the spiritual realms, time, space, higher levels of consciousness, beings, spiritual beings, angelic beings, it simply doesn't exist in the source. So therefore, inherently, innately, we are absolutely nothing. Then what are we? We are here, God created us, we're here, we're not an illusion. We, it's for real. We're here. But what are we? We're nothing other. Our entire content, our entire being is nothing other than we are an expression of, of, of God's ability to create. We are just an expression of God's creativity. That's all we are. Just like the light of the sun, the light, since the light has nothing of its own, all the light is is a reflection of the sun. The light can't exist for a moment without the sun. The light is nothing other than the sun. The sun, light points to the sun. Everything the light has is from the sun. Heat and, and warmth and light, it all comes from the sun. So our entire being, everything we have, comes from, from the divine creative energy that's constantly, 
creating us, and therefore we have no content, we have nothing, we have no other meaning, no other content, we have nothing other than our entire content. The meaning is nothing other than a reflection of the divine, of the divine. We're an expression of God's creative ability. That's what we are. Therefore, therefore, we are one with God. We talk about the unity of God. That there is nothing other than God. Meaning that it's not only that God is like the soul and the world is the body, just like our body is connected to its soul and the body is secondary to the soul. And the body is totally dependent on the soul. And the body is, has no independent reality other than the soul. It's much deeper than that. Because in this case of the body and the soul, the body is an independent reality. The body could exist without the soul. The person passes away, the body doesn't disappear. But it's life and energy is totally, entirely dependent on the soul. But, but with God... The world is not even like the body, that like God's body and God is a soul. The world is not even a secondary existence. All that is, is God. There's nothing outside of God, there's nothing but God. What are we? We are just God's creative expression, that's all we are. The body is separate from the soul, but the soul completely permeates the body and the body becomes completely unified with the soul but the body is still independent it's still a separate entity you could separate the body from the soul but we are not secondary to God totally secondary to God and God just like the the soul is totally in control of the body so too God is totally in control of this world nothing happens in this world as the Talmud says a person doesn't lift a pinky unless it was decreed in heaven that you should move that pinky because nothing in this world happens without the soul. Whether we sense it or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the reality. The fact is that we are totally, totally subversive. We are, we are totally subject to the soul. The soul is in total control of the body. The body moves automatically. As soon as your soul wants to lift the hand, the hand just automatically lifts up. Because the, the soul totally prevails over the body, so too in the world, God is, totally prevails over the world. God is in total control of the world. Nothing happens. It, not a thing happens in this world without God wish, willing it so and wishing it so. And God is in total control of the world. Not only God creates the world, but God is total in control of the world. But that's not the Jewish concept of divine unity. The Jewish concept of divine unity, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, is much deeper than that. Hashem Echad means that there is nothing but God. It's not like there's a soul and there's a body. All there is is God. Because what are we? The created, who is entirely dependent on God constantly and continuously creating us, because otherwise we would revert back to our inherent state, which is absolute nothing. So what are we? We are nothing. Even now we're nothing. What are we? What's our content? What's our meaning? What are we? Nothing other than the divine energy, the divine creative energy. We're just an expression of God's infinite ability, divine ability to create something from that. So therefore, what are we really? We're just, we're just godliness. So there's nothing other than God. 
So based on this deep understanding of the unity of God, the unity of God doesn't mean there's only one God and no two gods. It doesn't even mean there's only one power and not two powers. That God is like the soul who is the only power and is in total in charge and control of the body. So too God is in total control of this world and the world automatically just expresses God's will. It means much deeper than that. God is one means, there's only one entity, there's only one reality. Nothing else exists but God. We are completely nullified within God. Based on that, now we can understand what the Zohar means. That there are two levels of unity. There's a higher level of unity, and there's a lower level of unity. Because the Zohar is discussing the level, how deep, how connected, how deep is the nullification of the created beings to God. And he's going to explain and discuss two levels. The higher level of unity, which is expressed in the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. God is one, which is the higher level of unity, where we are totally nullified within God. And then, we have the secondary level, second level of unity, the lower level of unity, which is expressed in the Baruch, Shem, Kavod, Malchusel, Olam, Vaed, Vaed. The letters Vaed and Echad are interchangeable, as we learned last week. And Vaed means for all eternity, which is connected to God. Eternity comes from God. And so Vaed expresses a lower level of unity, and that's expressed in Vaed. And we'll get to that in a few moments. And actually, there are four levels of unity, but we'll get to that in a moment to make life more interesting, <laughs> more complex. <laughs> um, but we left off last week that he explained that creation, where does creation come from? Creation comes from the attribute of royalty, that God had a desire to be king. God had a desire to enter into a relationship with us. And it's that attribute of relationship, of communication, of relationship, that creates the world. Because any level, any attribute of God that's above the attribute of royalty, which is the lowest attribute of God, not only the attribute of God's wisdom and God's knowledge and God's understanding, but even the attribute of love and strength and and mercy and compassion, even the attribute of, of netzach, of uh, victoriousness, or, the, or, or beauty, or splendor, or connection, any of these attributes are all in relation to God, in relation to Himself. God in relation to Himself, there is no world. The world simply doesn't exist. There's nothing but God. Even the attribute of love, of kindness, attribute of love and kindness is in relation to something outside of you, right? You love something outside of you. You're attracted to something outside of you. You're repulsed by something outside of you. But nevertheless, they are self-descriptions. They describe you, what's happening inside of you. Your relation to that object that's outside of you. You love that object. You hate that object. You're attracted to the object. You're repulsed by the object. You have compassion on that object. You're a go-getter. You want to get that object. You connect with that object, but it's all inner descriptions. It's descriptions of your relationship to that object. So it still defines you and describes you. You haven't yet 
really focused on the object outside of you. When do you begin to focus on the object outside of you? That's what speech is all about. Communication. Relationship. Which is the attribute of royalty. Royalty. Marriage. Relationship. Speech. Is when you forget about yourself. And you get into the other person's head. I'm communicating to someone outside of me. I'm forgetting about me. I come to an end and the other person begins. And you communicate to the other person. You have a relationship with that other person. It's the customer that, makes, that creates your success. You don't make your own success. It has nothing to do with you. It's the outsider who buys your product that makes you successful. It's the audience that receives and applauds the, the artist that makes the artist successful. It's the student that makes the teacher. It's the, the person who buys the book that makes the author. It's your spouse that makes you married. It's not you. So the attribute of royalty is really the attribute of relationship. Where you come to an end and you step outside of yourself, you forget about yourself, and you focus on the other person. You get into the other person's head. How does the other person receive you? How are you reflected in the other person's mind? How do they respond to you? How do they see you? That's what communication is. Communication is not self-expression. Communication is you have to forget about yourself and really talk to someone. Are you talking to anyone? Are you talking to yourself? And if you talk to yourself, you will find yourself talking to yourself. (laughs) Because the audience will flee, will run. And the customers will run. That's what happened to many corporations. They start reading their own propaganda and they start talking to themselves and they just lose their customers. They lose touch. You have to be, the business person has to be brutally honest. Forget about yourself. Get into the other person's head. What does the other person want? What does the other person need? How does the other person see me? Not how I see myself. That's where communication comes in. So it's the attribute of royalty that actually creates the world. It's the attribute because God wanted to have a relationship. And therefore, the only way to have a relationship is to create something outside of God. Something that's independent from God, that's separate from God. And that entity has a relationship with God. Willingly chooses to have a relationship. Business, the customer has to willingly buy your stuff. If you force the audience to come listen to you, that, that, that doesn't give you any satisfaction. Marriage is when the person willingly wants to enter into a relationship with you. A king is when the subjects willingly accept him as king, otherwise he's a dictator. You can't force impose yourself. It has to come from the other person. The other person on their own has to willingly make a choice and deliberately, constantly choose to enter into a relationship with you. So it's the attribute of royalty that caused the creation of the world. And it's with this attribute that God actually creates the world. Creates a world that's defined by time and space and I that has a sense of separation. That's a separate entity. And then we deliberately choose to worship God, to connect with God, to enter into a relationship with God, to enter into a marriage with God, to be His subjects, to subject ourselves to We, thereby, we make God king. We cause God to be married. We make God king. We make God successful. He's selling and we're buying. 
He's not forcing himself on us. He's putting out his merchandise and he's competing in the open market with every nonsensical idea that's out there. You have the Torah and then you have to make a thousand separations. You have every other ism. And Hashem says, I want you to choose. I'm not, I'm not forcing. I'm not imposing. I have confidence in my merchandise. I have confidence in you that you'll have the wisdom to see the difference between, between Madison Avenue hype and between real schreider, real good material. And I'm selling you good material. It's good for you. It's good stuff. This is a reality. This is the real thing. Or you can buy communism. Or you can buy all the other isms that are out there, all the false isms. But this is the real thing. At the end of the day, this will remain standing. When all the isms will collapse, this is the one ism that will still remain standing forever and ever and all eternity. And as you grow older and wiser, you'll realize the wisdom and the brilliance and the, and the rightness and the correctness and the truth. And the... So we have to choose it. So it's the attribute of royalty with which God creates the world, the world that's separate from God. A world that's defined by time and space and, and a sense of I. And that's where we left off. The term world can be applied solely to that which possesses the dimensions of space and time. Space referring to east, west, north, and south, upward and downward and time referring to past, present, and future. Only with regard to entities that are subject to the limitations of space and time can the term world be applied. All these dimensions of space and time have no relation to the holy, supernal attributes of the world of Atsila, because those attributes are infinite. As explained earlier, the attribute of Hesed is infinite. So too are the other attributes in the world of Atsila. Hence, by definition, they are not at all subject to the limitations of space and time. Okay, so as we discussed, that the, all the attributes that are above the attribute of royalty are basically self-descriptions of God, who's infinite. And within, within the infinite, there is no possibility of time and space. And we can use a human analogy. We all had the experience of when we lost a sense of time or a sense of space. It happens rarely when you become so absorbed in what you're doing. You're so absorbed in what you're doing that you simply lose any sense of self, any sense of time, any sense of space. Hours can rush by and, and suddenly it's like you wake up from a trance. Where am I? What time is it? Where did all these hours fly by? Where was I? You lost any sense of self, of I, any sense of time, any sense of space. Because you're so absorbed, you're so connected, that there's no separation. When there's no separation, there is no time, there is no space. When there's no I, there is no time, there is no space. Time and space are relative. That was the revolution of Einstein. Time is relative. Time is not absolute. Time begins... The greater the sense of separation, the slower time becomes. Einstein's famous analogy depends what you're doing. Time can fly. Or if you're listening to a sermon, maybe time slows down. <laughs> Reminds me of the story the, uh, the, the rabbi spoke and he says, he says, you know, it doesn't bother me that you continue constantly keep looking at your watch while I'm speaking. What bothers me is 
when you take your watch and bring it to your ear to see if it's still working. <laughs> the time has come to a stop. So time is relative. When you are totally absorbed in what you're doing, you're so connected, there's no sense of I, and there's no sense of time. There's no sense of space. Hours can go by, and it's like, it's like a second. Suddenly you're in a trance, and there's no sense. Because there's no sense of separation. Where does time begin? Where does space begin? Only when there's a sense of separation. When there's a sense of I and there's a separate entity and you're a part and you're objective and you're on the outside, then you have a sense of time in a sense. And the more prominent the I, the more assertive the I is, then the more disconnected you are. The more fragmented you are, the more disconnected you are then the more prominent time becomes, the more rigid time becomes, and the more rigid sense of space becomes. So these are relative terms. And that's what the Magid, Rabbi Dov Ber, the Magid Mezrish, the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, the, the successor to the founder of the Hasidic movement, said that, you know, the philosophical question, why did God create the world 5,765 years ago? Why didn't God create the world earlier? And what's the answer? He said, there is no earlier. Just like God created the world, He created time also. Time is also a creation. Before creation, there is no time. Up, when you go to a level that's beyond creation, in the infinite, in God, there is no time. When you're, unite, when you're absorbed, when you're connected, there is no time. There's no sense of separation. So there is no time, there is no space. Time begins with creation. When God creates, and there's a sense of I, a sense of separation that's when suddenly you become aware of time. You get a sense of time and a sense of space. So the three are connected. The sense of I, of separation, of ego, and the sense of time, the sense of space of creation. When, you, when, there's, when you're above it, then there is no time. So he says any level of atzillus, of the world of emanation, higher than the attribute that's above the attribute of royalty, which is the lowest level, the lowest attribute, which are all descriptions of God, himself, even in relationship to out, something outside of God. But still, there are self-descriptions. God is infinite, therefore there really is no time. There is no space. There is no I. There isn't even a possibility of time, space, and I. Where does time, space, and I begin? It all begins with the attribute of royalty. Is time is relative how come we're able to measure it with uniform standards across the board? Well, I mean... You have to speak to a physicist, but according no, to Einstein, right. according to Einstein, it doesn't know. You can have the isn't same it, reality and it's two different times. But isn't, it, the, it, it, isn't, isn't the word time to an extent? I'm not going to argue that Einstein pursues an almost semantical to a point that perhaps sometimes time seems shorter than it really is because we're absorbed. I mean, I guess because no, he says he can't measure it. That was his whole point. You cannot measure it. You'll get two different two different clocks and two two different two different times because time is not absolute. You cannot measure time. Time is relative. Time is our outsider's perspective, relative outsider's perspective and take on a reality that's really beyond time, beyond space. So, therefore, we get a very relative description. It's just a human description from the outside looking in of a reality that ultimately transcends time and space. And that's why you can have two different people at the same time experiencing two different realities. And you know, this one will age and this one will be 30, you know, many years younger. Objectively, they're going through the same time, but they're not. Time is different. 
in our world, it's very hard to see the practical differences. But once you reach the, 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 uh, you know, the speed of time, he says, yes, you would see the difference. And you may even be able to go back in time. I mean, you know, it's, it's a whole different... That's why the, um, as you grow higher and higher, higher level, time is less rigid. That's one of the concepts of divine inspiration. The great tzaddikim, the great righteous Jews, um, they were able to see this world from a higher perspective, from a heavenly perspective. And in heaven, time is condensed. So, in other words, what time, as it's played out in this world, may take many, many years, on a higher level, that same time is condensed in one moment. For example... Every thought that you have, if you try to speak and communicate that thought, in speech, that thought that took you maybe five minutes to think will take you a half hour to explain. So it's the same thing. But thought is a much more subtle world, a higher world, so it's much more condensed. It's quicker, it's all there, within five minutes. But when you go to a lower level, everything is like slow motion. Everything is played out in slow motion. When you go on a higher level, and, and that explains, there's a, there's a story of the Baal Shem Tov, famous story of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, that he once came to his Hasid, he visited with all his students, they came to visit, and the Hasid was so happy to get this unexpected guest, the Baal Shem Tov himself came to visit him, and he offered him a beautiful meal, and then at the end of the meal, Baal Shem Tov said, do me a favor. He wrote a letter, and he said, do me a favor, please deliver this letter to the president of the Jewish community in Brod, in Brody. Sure, Rebbe, I'll do anything for you. And the party continued, and they ran out of wine. He went down to the cellar. He was very wealthy. He went down to the cellar to get some more wine, nice wine. While he went to the cellar, the letter in his pocket fell out. He didn't even realize, didn't even notice. Washington left, and he forgot all about this letter, got all about the request. From that point on, everything went from bad to worse. Everything went downhill. His business went down. And he couldn't understand it. He was like on top of the world and suddenly his business went bad to worse. Until he reached a point where, and this was many, many years later. The Baal Shem Tov had already passed away. He couldn't even go to the Baal Shem Tov to ask him for a blessing. It was many years later. Finally, he was reduced to looking in his cellar, maybe he has a lost gold button or something he can sell, support his family. He goes down to the cellar, and as he's looking through, the, through his chest, he finds the letter. And suddenly, in a flash, in an instant, he remembers. Like 10, 20 years ago, the Vashem was here, and he asked me, he says, now I know why I became poor. I promised the Vashem, who knows how important this letter must have been. And I just neglected it and I left, let it drop and I forgot all about it. No wonder I deserve what happened to me. So immediately he takes this letter and he decides, who knows, maybe it's not too late. It is, it is 10, 20 years later, but he couldn't afford the, the horse and wagon to get to Brody. He starts walking. Anyway, he comes to Brody and the letter is addressed to, I forget the name, uh, Rabbi Fischl, the head, the president of the Jewish community of Brody. So he stops the first Jew. He says, please tell me, where can I find Rabbi Fischl, the head of the... He says, who? There's no such president. What are you talking about? He says, okay, maybe it was many years ago. So he stops an older Jew. He says, was there once a Rabbi Fischl? Not in my my lifetime. 
So he goes, he goes, he finds the old Jews, you know, the 90-year-olds, remember? He says, do you remember ever as a child? Was there a rabbi official there or something? We don't know what you're talking about. There never was. I don't understand. I have a letter from the Baal Shem Tev. As he's going around inquiring, there's a big tumult in town. That there was just an election in the city and they just elected Rabbi Official to be the president of the community. <laughs> he wasn't. He didn't know what to think. But, you know, and they're, they're, they're marching him down with a procession and they're wishing him l'chaim and congratulating him for becoming the president of the community. And he pushes his way in. He says, um, I, I know this may sound strange to you, but I have a letter from the Vashemta for you. He says, what are you talking about? The Vashemta passed away a few years ago. I don't know. I have a letter from the Vashemta addressed from the official, the president of the community of Brody. Anyway, they, they, he takes the letter. He opens it up. And the letter begins. Mazel tov. <laughs> You've just become the president of the... And just to prove that I'm writing this letter, as we speak, you're going to be getting, uh, uh, someone's going to come rushing to you telling you that your wife just gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. That's exactly what happened. As he's reading it, everyone says, Mazel tov, Mazel tov, what an auspicious day. And the day he became president, he had another simcha. He says, the reason I'm writing you this letter is because this is Jew, my close chassid, my close student, who's a very precious Jew. And unfortunately, he lost everything that he had. He used to be very wealthy and a great baltzadaka, very generous. And he lost everything that he had. I'm asking you, personal favor, please do whatever you can to try to help him get back on his feet. And he wish it ends with a blessing and he signs. This is a famous story. So what does that mean? No time was based. <laughs> because on a higher level, on the level that Baal Shem Tov was at, 20 years is now. What takes in this world to play out in 20 years, on a higher level, it already happened. It's, it's, it's like the world of thought in comparison to the world of speech. It's, it's all there. Condensed. So he saw it already. To him it already happened. So, so the time and space are very relative. The lower you get, the more egotistical you get, the more separate you get, the more rigid time becomes and the more rigid space becomes. But when you get to a higher level, the higher you get, time and space become less rigid and more connected. And that's why there's a a healthy sense of past and there's a healthy sense of future. If you look in the Torah, even the scoundrels in the Torah, had a vision of over a thousand years, generation. Every, everyone felt that they, are, you know, that they are going to have offsprings a thousand years from now. There, there was like, like a sense of time. Today, what's our sense of time? Today that the world is so egotistical, the sense of time is now, this moment. Nothing else exists besides this moment. This momentary pleasure, just this moment. There's no sense of history, and there's, no se- there's no sense of destiny, there's no sense of future, there's no sense of past. All there is is this moment. So the more rigid, the more egotistical you become, the more rigid the sense of time and space also become. But the less rigid you are, the less egotistical you are, you have a much more flexible sense of time. It's the continuum of time and space and the connection between past and present and future and this place and all other spaces. So it's all relative. It's not absolute. That was was the whole revolution of Einstein. 
So the whole sense of self only begins with the attribute of royalty, with the attribute of relationship, God's attribute of relationship, that God wanted to relate to something outside of himself. And with this attribute, he created something that's outside of him and separate from him and apart from him. That's where, with that attribute, God creates time and creates space and creates a, a sense of self that's outside of God, so to speak. Beyond that, there is no time. Time is completely nullified. There is no sense of time. Just like with our own human experience. When we become so absorbed in something and we're so connected, we lose all sense of time, we lose all sense of space, we lose all sense of I. There's absolutely no time and space. It's only when we have that sense of ego, that sense of separation, self-consciousness. The more self-conscious we are, the more the more prominent is our sense of time and our sense of space and our sense of separation, our sense of past, present, and future, and here, there, and other places. I have a question. One? I mean, <laughs> in relationship to our existence, though, we, we're definitely in a, in a mode of time. We know it's like 120 years. There's no extensions or... Uh, it's very def- defined, said that... Our lives are defined in terms of time. We know, we, we know we're not going to be here after 120 years. Because we are created. That's the definition of being created. God created us. We are created, so we are defined by time and space, and we, are, we have a self-conscious, we have a sense of... That's why angels, angels are, are, live forever, <coughs> because angels are connected. Angels don't have a sense of ego. Therefore, angels live forever. What about Tzadikim? They have a time limit also. But they do, because since they live in the framework of this world, they are affected by this world. And ultimately, they are subject to the limits of this world. Um, (coughs) At least overtly. Covertly, Torah says Jacob never died for that reason. Because Jacob was connected. Moses never died in that sense. But overtly, yes, they died. They were buried and they, because we, we live in that frame of reference, time and space, and everyone is subject to that time and space, with the exception of Elijah the prophet, who never died, whose body went up to heaven alive and his body physically transformed into an angel. Um, he became an angel. And just like an angel lives forever in an angelic form. But we... Since we are not on that level of Elijah the prophet, we are subject to time and space, and therefore we experience that time and that passing of time. But isn't it fascinating that scientists today and companies are spending billions of dollars? They envision a world in which people will live hundreds of years and will be just as youthful in their their 300th year as they are when they're 20 years old. And this is not science fiction. This is hard-nosed business, investing billions of dollars in longevity. In the, in the Firefly, they already achieved uh, Musushela's years. They quadrupled, quadrupled the lifespan of a Firefly already by playing with the genes. So obviously, you know, we are on the threshold of, of Messianic era, which, which everything will change. But right now, we are subject to the limits of time and space. Mashiach, the redemption hasn't yet materialized. And therefore, uh, even the greatest tzaddik 
is subject to that limitation. Page 912, in the middle of the page. Only concerning the attribute of God's knowledge is it possible to say that he is king, above without end and below without end, and likewise in all directions. This means to say that God is king of all creatures, from the very highest to the very lowest. Thus, when speaking to Moffat, it is in order to use terminology that has some relationship to space, such as higher and lower. This indicates that Moffat itself has some relationship to the aspects of time and space. So only regarding the attribute of Malchus could you talk about being closer to the king, like a minister, being further away from the king, being a simple subject. It's only in relationship to Malchus, to the God's divine attribute of royalty, that you can talk about a higher, different levels, which is, differentiates time, space, someone closer to the king, someone further away from the king, the, the city people, the village people. Um, and so too, the same, same is true. Continue. The same is true concerning the dimension of time, i.e. that the attribute of Mahmoud is in, in some small measure related to time as it is written. God reigns, God has reigned, God will reign. I.e. God's reign is related to present, past, and future, the dimension of time. Just the life force of space and likewise of time, and their coming into being from nothingness, and their existence as long as they shall exist, are from God's attribute of Mahmoud and from the name of Adnan. Okay, so the name, we know that God has seven names. Kale is love, kindness. Elohim is strength. Yudke Vavke is, is, is compassion. And Tzavakos is, is Netzach, uh, victoriousness. And Shakai is Yisoid, connection. And Adnai, the way we pronounce Hashem's name, we don't pronounce Hashem's name the way it's written. We're not allowed to pronounce Hashem's name the way it's written. Only when Mashiach will come. Or during the temple, the high priest would have pronounced uh, Hashem's name the way it's written. But Hashem's essential name, the four-letter name, Yudke Vavke, we pronounce Adonai. Adonai. What does Adonai mean? Adonai means Adon, a master. God is our master. God is our king. This re- represents the attribute of royalty. That because God, God wanted to enter into this relationship, this king-subject relationship, into this marriage, and therefore God created a world that's separate from him, a world and what's the definition of world he stated earlier? Definition of world means where there's time and there's space, where there's a sense of I. And this world has a relationship with him. Okay, and now he's going to come to the crux of what we were discussing earlier, that based on this concept of the unity of God, there are four levels of unity. Here is going to discuss two of those four levels, the two middle levels. But then there is the highest level. When we talk about the higher level of unity, there's two levels of a higher level of unity within the higher level of unity, and then there's two levels in the lower level of unity. The ultimate level of unity, the highest level of unity is, the way he described earlier, in the earlier chapters, chapter 3, that since the world on its own is basically nothing, absolutely nothing, on our own we are absolutely nothing, we do not exist within our source. 
it's not that we are revealed a revelation of the source. We simply do not exist within the source. We are nothing within the source. Absolutely nothing. We're not a reflect. We're not a piece of the source. We're not a reflection of the source. There's no connection between us and the source. We add nothing to the source. We're not a piece of the source. We're absolutely nothing. And creation is a divine miracle. Only God has the power to create something from nothing. Like seemingly out of nowhere. Unprecedented. Like suddenly. A quantum leap. How do you get this cup of water? From where? Where does this cup of water come from? There's nothing that, it's not that it follows something. It's not like it's following a line of reasoning. Okay, this, this force, this logically compels me to this, and therefore this ultimately leads me to water, to the physical. No. There's nothing in the source that indicates. I mean, a human being, could a human being, a human being will give birth forever and ever, you'll never give birth to a monkey. you never give birth to a monkey. Why? Because there's no connection. How do you get from here to there? There's no connection. So how do you get from, from the source, how do you get from godliness, how do you get something physical? It's not, it's not that we're a piece, a reflection of, of God, a piece of God. It's, we don't exist in the source. And it means nothing in the source. And it adds nothing. And it is nothing. But God has the ability to create something from that. So therefore... What are we on our own? Absolutely nothing. Why do we exist? Because the divine creative energy creates us each and every moment. So what is our content? What is our meaning? What are we really? Nothing other than the divine creative energy. God's ability to create. That's all we are. That's our substance. That's our essence. That's who we are. That's what we are. So we are totally unified within God. Nothing exists but God. There's nothing else. All there is is God and His creative ability to create. That's all there is. Is there a cup of water? Yeah, no, we're not saying the cup of water doesn't exist. It's a maya. It's an illusion. It's a, it's a, it's a movie. That, that it's, a, it's an illusion. It's a Hollywood illusion. No, that's God forbid. It's, of course, God, God is real and He creates us. And it says in the Torah He created us and it's real. But, but it, it has no meaning. It has no reality. It has no meaning. It, it doesn't exist. Because what is it? What is there? Nothing. All there is is God. There is nothing else. What is this cup of water? What is this grape? Shakol niyabit varo. Is it really? What is it really? Inherently, innately, it's absolutely nothing. It doesn't exist in the source. It doesn't add anything to the source. What is it? It's God's ability to create a grape. To create a cup of water. So really, all you have is, is the divine creative ability. And if we did not have blinders, if we were able to see the truth, what would we see? You wouldn't even notice the cup of water. You wouldn't even notice the grape. You wouldn't notice yourself. All you would notice is the divine miracle of creation. The infinite, the process, the infinite process, the dynamic, vibrant process of, of creation. That each and every moment God is constantly creating us and we are, we are God's creative energy. That's all we are. So all you would see is the divine you wouldn't even notice anything. So that's the highest level of unity. We're, we're completely nullified. There's no ego. There's no I. There's no separation. 
We are totally within the source. We are nullified within the source. All we are is God's potential and God's ability to create. That's all we are. There's nothing but God. And that's all you would notice. That's all you would see. And you wouldn't even see yourself. So that's the ultimate level of unity, where you're totally unified within the source. What's the lowest level of unity, the other extreme? The lowest level of unity is what we just learned now. That God created the world with a divine attribute of royalty. God wanted to have a relationship with us. So God created us as separate beings, and He wants us to willingly and deliberately choose to enter into a relationship with Him, to willingly want to marry God, get married to God, want to buy. We're ready to pay and to buy this merchandise. We buy into it, willingly. He wants us to willingly worship and acknowledge and subject ourselves and connect with Him. Why? Because God had a desire, God wanted to be king. And we are the only ones who can make God king. We are the only ones who can make God married. We are the only ones who can make God successful. God wanted to communicate. So he needs us to want and listen in order for him to be able to communicate. So without us, he cannot communicate. He cannot be king. He cannot have a relationship. So in that sense, from that point of view, you can't say that we're nothing. We play a very prominent role. God needs us. He needs us to be separate from Him and to willingly enter into relationship with Him. So from the divine, from the perspective of the divine attribute of royalty, we do exist. Our existence has a meaning, a very important meaning. We play a very prominent role. We're not just, we're not just a canvas for God to express His creativity. God really needs us. Without us, we make him successful. Without us, he's not successful. That's why God pleads with us, pleads with each and every Jew, please do me a favor. Do the right thing. Do me a favor. It's not the way people understand classically. Well, God doesn't need prayer. God doesn't need us. God, out of his kindness, he throws us something and he allows us to keep Torah mitzvot. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's incorrect. God really needs us. Because without us, he is not king. He cannot make himself king. He can't marry himself. It's perfect as he is. Even if you're God, you can't marry yourself. Even if you're perfect, you have to forget about yourself. And the moment you forget about yourself, and you realize it's the other person who makes me whole, I can't make myself whole. So from that perspective, God really needs us. So you can't say that we're nothing. We don't exist. We're absolutely nothing. We play a very important role, a very prominent role. So from the, from the attribute of Adonai, from the attribute of Adon, from Malchut, from royalty, the world is prominent. But, nevertheless, we are unified with God. Why? Because we have the ability to worship God. We have the ability to connect with God. We have the ability to willingly enter into a relationship with God. We have the ability to use our minds and use our hearts to think and to meditate and to reflect and to understand and to grasp and to get the truth of God and to willingly enter into a relationship with God. So we are nullified, but it's the lowest level of nullification. We are something, but we choose to nullify and to connect with Hashem, with God the creator. 
We open our minds, we open our eyes, remove the blinders and recognize that there is a creator. And that God is our king and our sovereign. And that God is our husband and we're his wife and that we want to be into this, we want to be in this relationship. And we willingly purchase the merchandise, pay the price, purchase the merchandise. And so there's a connection. So it's, it's a unity, but it's a lower level of unity. Unlike the first level, the higher level of unity, the highest level of unity, in which we are completely nullified. We simply don't exist. And as the analogy you brought earlier, the analogy of the light of the sun within the sun, with, you can't give what you don't have. Obviously, if the sun gives off light, the sun has light within it. The sun has the potential to give off light. But within the sun, all there is is the sun. You can't even find the light. It's there, but you can't find it. It's nothing. Because all there is is really the sun. What is the light? The light is nothing but the sun. So all there is is the sun. So the light is completely nullified. So it's there, but it's completely nullified. So in the highest level of unity, the world is completely nullified. We are totally unified with God. We don't even sense, there's no sense of I. There's no sense of ego. There's no sense of separation. We are completely unified with God. All there is is God. We, we, what do you see? There's no blinders. What do you see? The sun. All there is is the sun. What do you see? All there is is God. There's nothing else. Of course there's a cup of water, but that's not what you see. What is the cup of water? It's God's creative energy. That's all there is. That's the content. That's the meaning. That's, that's what it's all about. That's all you see. That's all you notice. That's all you perceive. So what do you perceive? Godliness. There's nothing else but God. That's the higher level of unity. But on the other extreme, the lowest level of unity, is from, from the perspective of the attribute of royalty, there is a world. And the whole purpose of the attribute of royalty is to create a world with a sense of eye, a sense of time, a sense of space, a sense of separation. And nevertheless, we are unified with God because we worship God, we perceive that there is a God, there is a creator, and we connect with God. And that is the lower level of you. But then... Alter Rebbe is now going to discuss another two levels of unity. Now, since Hashem's attribute of Malchut is united with His essence and being in an absolute union, as will be explained, space and time which are created from Malchut are therefore also completely nullified in relation to Hashem's essence and being, just as sunlight will distill within the orb of the sun is nullified in the sun. This means to say, as long as Malchut still exists in a state of complete union, with Hashem's essence and being, space and time, the source of worlds, as found within the attribute of Malchut, are utterly nullified relative to Hashem. This state is called higher level unity. It exists only before the descent of Malchut through various simtsumim, in order to invest itself in the lower worlds, thereby creating them and providing them with life. It is then that the worlds enjoy the state of higher level unity. Because from the perspective of the pristine source of Malchut and Adnut, which brings about their existence, their actual creation is as yet inconceivable, inasmuch as Malchut and Adnut are still in a state of inclusion within their source. Consequently, space and time exist there in the same manner as the light of the sun exists within the sun, in a state of complete nullity. He's saying that although these two levels of unity that we discussed is a level of unity that comes from the name Hashem. The name Hashem, which is God's attribute of kindness, of love to create, God's ability to create. And from 
that perspective, the world is completely nullified, the world simply doesn't exist. Even after it's created, but it simply doesn't exist, it's completely nullified within the source. Then you have the attribute, the name Adnai, the attribute of royalty. From that perspective, the world is prominent, the world does exist. But, nevertheless, these two names, these two attributes of God are unified within God. So you can't separate these two attributes. So these two attributes are connected with each other. And he's now going to explain that there are two ways to connect these two attributes. You can connect the higher name, the name Yudke Vavke, the four-letter name, Hashem's essential name, with the lower name, the name Adnai, from the top down, so to speak. Or you can connect the name Adnai with the name Yudke Vavke from the bottom up. And in the Kabbalah, this is called, referred to as the combining the two names of Hashem. And you'll find in some Sidurim, especially the Svardik Sidurim, you'll find that the two names many times are written together. But there are two ways of writing it together. In other words, one letter from this name and another letter followed by another letter of that name. So you, let's say you have Yud from Yud Kei Vav Kei and then Aleph from Adonai. Aleph, Dalet, Nun Yud. Then Hey, and then Dalit, the second letter from the other name, and then Vav, the third letter from Yudke Vavke, and then the third letter from Adnai, which is Nun, and then the last He, the final He of Yudke Vavke, and then Yud from Adnai. See? Maybe you can pass it around. See? Yud, Aleph, He. These are the combination of the two names. How do you pronounce it? Uh, don't ask me. <laughs> it's not meant to be in that. I don't know how to pronounce it. You, you, you look at it. Then you have the two letters written, but first you start with Aleph, Adnai. That's the, that's the first letter. Aleph, then Yud, first letter of the other name, the higher name. Then Dalid, then Hey, then Nun, then Vav, then Yud, then Hey. The difference is, which is the primary? Which is the first? The first sets the tone. Yudke Vavke. Which is the first? If the first is the Yudke Vavke, then that's, that's the primary. And the other, the name Adnai, is submerged in the Yudke Vavke. If the letter, the word begins with Aleph, from Adnai, then the Yudke Vavke is submerged in the Adnai. And the higher level of unity, that's referred to in Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, refers to the higher level of unity. And the lower level of unity, Baruch Hashem, Kavayim Achos refers to the, the lower level of unity. So what does that mean? And what that means is that there is a possibility where there is time and space which is represented by the name Adnai, yet that time and space is totally submerged in the higher name, in the name Yudke Vavke, which totally transcends time and space. Yudke Vavke represents Haya, Hove, V'yiyeh. Three different words, all in one word. Past, present, and future is all one. Transcending, there's no past, there's no present, there's no future, it's all one. Where did we see that? We witnessed that in the temple. 
the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies had to have a certain measurement. The Holy of Holies had to be 30 feet, approximately. The Holy of Holies contained the Ark. The Ark had a certain measurement. The Ark had to be two and a half amos in the length and uh, one and a half amos in, in the width. Now, if you stood in the Holy of Holies and you measured the Ark, it would fit the exact measurements that, that the Torah gives us. It was three feet and nine inches in the length. Three feet and nine inches in length. So if you measured the ark, if you had a measuring stick, the ark would be three feet and nine inches in the length. And it was like two feet and three inches in the width, approximately. Okay. So if you measured, it had that length and that width. Now, if you measured the room from one end to the other, if you had another measuring stick simultaneously, it would be 30 feet. If you stood at the side of the ark and you measured simultaneously, you had one measuring stick from this side of the ark to the edge of the room. From this side of the ark to the edge of the room, you would get 15 feet, as if the ark wasn't there. What do you mean it's not there? I'm measuring it. It's here. It's present. It actually contains, it takes up space. I'm measuring the ark. It takes up the exact space the Torah tells us to. And it must take up that space because otherwise it's not an ark. Otherwise the Holy of Holies would cease to be holy. Or the Holy of Holies must have the measurements as described by the prophets and described in the Torah. So simultaneously you had a measurement, a very strict measurement, a defined measurement, and at the same time it took up no space. It took up space, and it didn't take up space at the same time. It's as if the ark wasn't there. So there was time. There is time. There is space. You can measure the space. You can measure the time. And at the same time, it's as if it doesn't exist. There is no time. There is no space. It's as if, as if time-space dimension doesn't exist. While it exists, simultaneously, with a very specific and defined time and space, within that defined time and space, this time and space of the Holy of Holies, simultaneously at that very moment, it, it transcended time and space. There was no time and space. This is the combination of the two names. It's a combination of two opposites. The combination of the name Hashem, which is past, present, and future together. In the name Hashem, as I said earlier, the worlds don't exist. There is no existence. All there is is God. There is no time. There is no space. If we had no blinders, if we had no tzimtzum, if we had no contraction, if we didn't have the name Adnai, we wouldn't even notice the world. We wouldn't, there would be no sense of space, no sense of time. There would be no sense of I, no separation. We'd be totally absorbed within God. There's no I, there is no time, there's no space. Totally transcending time and space. All there is is God. But that name is submerged the name Adnai is submerged within that name. The name Adnai, which represents the attribute of royalty, which creates time and space. Simultaneously, while you have time and space, that time and space is totally submerged within the attribute of Hashem, Yudke Vavke, which totally transcends time and space. So you have time and space at the same time that you don't have time and space. It's a reflection of God's Undefined self. Since God is undefined, God could square the circle. 
God could, could do opposites. It's, a, it's an impossibility. It's a contradiction in terms. How can you have time and space at the same time? How can you, have, how can you square a circle? Have a square and have a circle at the same time. It's impossible, right? We can't do it. Because we are defined. But God is not undefined. God can square the circle. God can have a holy of holies. We have time and space. And you don't have time and space simultaneously at the same time. It's impossible. Of course it's impossible. So God can do the impossible. God is undefined. So within God, opposites reside. So that's the deeper level of unity. The deeper level of unity. And the truth is, we saw it in the Holy of Holies. But the truth is, from God's point of view, the whole world is really that way. From God's point of view, all of time and space, all of creation, is really an expression of God's undefined self. In other words, to God, time and space is not about limitation. What is time and space about? Time and space is an expression of God's true infinity. The fact that God is truly infinite and truly undefined. God is not limited to being infinite. God is not limited to being above time and space. God could even be in time and space. So time and space are not about time and space. What do time and space express? They express God's essence. God's truly undefined self, God's paradoxical self. The fact that, that God is so whole that God could contain limits and, and, and beyond limit at the same time, infinite and finite at the same time. So yes, there is time and space, but what does that time and space express? The time and space is submerged in the infinite because all the time and space come to express is that God is not limited to being infinite. He's so infinite. It's the ultimate expression of God's infinity that God is truly infinite. He's so infinite that he's not limited to being infinite, he can even express himself in time and space. So there is time and space, but is it really about time and space? It's totally unified within God. It's an expression of God. The ultimate, absolute essence of God. So yes, there is time and space. There is the name Adnai. That name Adnai is dear. But it's the second letter. It's submerged within the name Yudke Vavke. What is primary? What is predominant? What prevails? The name Yudke Vavke, which transcends time and space. Total unity within God. There's nothing but God. The world is just an expression of God. But we don't just have Yudke Vavke, which means there is no time and space. We have the name Adnai, which creates time and space. But the name Adnai is totally submerged within the name Yudke Vavke, that what does the time and space come to represent, express? Not time and space, separation. It comes to express God's ultimate essence, God's absolute essence, that he can combine opposites. And he can even express himself in time and space at the same time being higher than time and space. So that's the higher level of unity. That was revealed in the Holy of Holies. If you felt that, if you realize this, this whole world would be a Holy of Holies to you, to us. It wouldn't be the world that we live in and occupy. But we don't see that. Then you have the lower level of unity. What is the lower level of unity? The higher level of unity is represented in the Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokein Hashem Echad. God is one. That even time and space are really connected with God. Godliness. What is time and space? Nothing other than the expression of God's absolute infinite essence. That the finite, the, the time, there is time, there is space. But what does that time and space represent? 
not timeless. It represents that God is so infinite, he even, he even transcends the infinite. He even transcends being infinite. That he can even, even express himself in the finite. So, so what is the time and space? It's not about being time and space. It's about expressing the ultimate, absolute, infinite essence of God, undefined essence of God. That's Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Where time and space, creation, created beings, time and space, the world is completely nullified within God. There's nothing other than God. It's only an expression of God's absolute, undefined essence. But then you have a lower level of unity, which is represented in the Baruch Shem Kevoid Machus Olam Void. Void means forever. When could you say forever? Only when you're in the framework of time and space. Only from the perspective of Adonai, of God's attribute of royalty, could you say forever. From the perspective of Yudke Vavke, you can't say forever. When, when there is no time, there's no forever. Forever is only when you're living in, this, in the sense of time, it's forever. So the, the void, which means forever, means that we're already in the, from the perspective of Adonai. We're already from the perspective of the divine attribute of royalty. But nevertheless, even that attribute, the attribute Yudke Vavke, is submerged within the attribute of Adnai. The name Adnai is primary. That's the first letter, Aleph and then Yud. Talid and then Hey. Nun and then Vav. Yud and then Hey. What does that mean? And that means what he explained earlier. We learned in the previous chapter. Adnai represents the tzimtzum, represents God's ability to hide, to conceal, to create something outside of himself, to forget about himself, to create an empty space, to enable existence outside of God. And that's like the shield, the prism that deflects the light. The light goes through the prism and suddenly you get yellow light and red light and when you're on the receiving end, you see the light in, the, in many different ways. The light itself is pure. But when the light comes through the prism, suddenly you see all different colors and all different variations and realities. So that's God's ability to shield the light and to contain the light and to the, direct the light. But then that analogy is not accurate. Why? Because in the case of the shield, in the case of the prism, you have the light and then you have the prism. But in God's case, God is the light and God is the prism. The ability to hide, the ability to contract, the ability to condense, the ability to contain the letters, the shield, God is the shield and God is the light. It's the right hand and it's the left hand. Could the right hand, could the left hand cover up in the right hand? To the outsider, yes, but not, not to you. According to Jewish law, could you put your hand on your head and use it as a yarmulke? No. Someone else could put his hand on your head, but you can't put your own. It's not, it's not a covering. You can't cover up on yourself. So because God is the light, and God is the shield, God is the right hand, and God is the left hand, God is Hashem, and God is Elohim, Atma is also God. So the symptom, the contraction, the condensing, the condensing and the, the attribute of royalty, it's all God. So yes, it's the attribute of royalty with which God creates the world, but that attribute of royalty is also God. And God is one. The attribute of Hashem, Yudke Vavke, the infinite, or the attribute of royalty, the attribute of contraction, the attribute of concealment. It's all the same God. So God is the right hand, God is the left hand, God is the light, God is the prism. So therefore, in essence, what are we? 
We, meaning time, space, entities, the world, the universe, what are we? It's all God. The very attribute that creates us is also God. So we are just a reflection of God. So godliness permeates our whole being. There's nothing other than God. So even within time and space, even after God creates the world of time and space, time and space is filled with God. There's no place empty of God. Because time and space is just an expression of God's tzimtzum, of God's adnai, of God's ability to hide and to conceal, God's attribute of royalty. And that alone is God. So it's all God. It's like God playing with himself and hiding himself. But we can't see the whole picture. We can see Hashem and Olakim is all one. So to us, there's a split. There's Hashem, the energy, and then there's the concealment. To us, the light is here and the shield is there. And therefore, we are the result of that interplay between the light and the shield. Therefore, we are created and we live in a world of separation. There's a separation between body and soul, and material and spiritual, and ego and oh, east and west. And we can't overcome that divide because we are on the outside. We are on the receiving end. But from God's perspective, the truth is, there is no split. There is no up and there is no down and there is no high and there is no low and there is no spiritual and there is no physical. There is no light and there is no prism. God is the light and God is the prism. It's all God. There is nothing but God. So what are we really? Our very substance is really all God. So God fills time and space. It's all God. Therefore, godliness permeates all of time and space. There's no place empty of God. So we are connected. It's a lower level of connection because time and space are prominent. There is time and space. There is the tzimtzum. But nevertheless, that's also God. And God and His attributes are all one. So the, the, the tzimtzum is really Hashem. It's all the same. And therefore, we are truly, even time and space, after time and space are created, time and space are really permeated with God. Every aspect of creation is completely and entirely permeated with godliness. Our substance is really godliness. So we are unified with God. We don't feel it. So what does this help us? This is God's point of view. How does this help us? Because knowing God's point of view at least enables us. That enables us to be able to do what we need to do. To be able to rise above our egos and to be able to worship God and to be able to connect with God and to be able to do the Torah and the mitzvah. And this is the mission of a Jew. Shema Yisrael is something that a Jew says. These two levels of unity, the levels of unity realizing that even time and space are totally connected with God, this is the mission of a Jew. Through Torah and mitzvot, through Torah and mitzvot, we're able to reveal the godliness within the world, and we're able to transform and to elevate all of the world, all of creation, and able to elevate it and to to transform it into something godly. To, to achieve that unity between Hashem, the attribute of Hashem, and the attribute of Adnai. That Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem, Echad, both of these names become totally one. And Baruch Shem, Kavod, Machus, the lower level of unity, that even after we create time and space, and even now a framework where we are very prominent, we have a healthy sense of self, and there's time and there's space, but yet we realize the truth is, from God's point of view, nothing changed. Godliness permeates every corner, every fiber of our being, every cell of creation, every down to the last grain of sand, to the last amoeba, to every atom. Everything is totally permeated with godliness. Because 
This attribute is also God. So it's all God. If, if the one in the Shema refers to the unification of the infinite and the finite, what, so, it's, it, so is, was it, does, it, does that one also refer to, the, to Hashem being only one? Uh, oh, that's a very good question. That's why we don't say, it would, logically, it would seem we should have said Hashem Yachid. If you want to say that God is one, you should have used the expression Yachid. Yachid in Hebrew means exclusive. Exclusive. There's only one. Echad does, is not exclusive. Echad could be followed by two. Echad just means number one, but it could be a number two. So you're trying to express God's unity. There's only one God. Why would you say Hashem Echad? You should say Hashem Yachid. Exclusive. There's only one God. But that's the whole point. Yachid means is a level, the highest level of unity. We discussed earlier. It means there's nothing but God. That's not what he's coming to say. He's coming to say Echad. Echad, the Talmud says Echad is Aleph. Aleph refers to Hashem. Ches refers to the seven heavens and this earth. Dalad refers to the four corners of the world. Because Chet is eight and Dalad is Right. Chet is, right. The numerical value. Aleph is one. Chet is eight. Seven heavens and this world. Dalad is the four corners of the world. Time and space are connected. And that's the, that's the theme of Echad. Echad means that even after God creates time and space, even when God creates time and space with the attribute of Royalty, which is a genuine attribute of God. This is the divine energy, the divine words, names with which God creates the world and creates us and creates time and space. And that's a genuine divine attribute. And the world, and God creates the world that we live in, that we function in. This is our frame of reference. There is I, there's time, there's space. And nevertheless, Hashem Echad. The world is completely unified within God. The world is completely one with God. We are totally nullified within God. Without nullifying time and space. Time and space, within time, just like in the Holy of Holies, you had time, you had space, clearly defined, clearly measured, very genuine, and at the same time, it, it wasn't time and space. It was totally transcended time and space. That's the highest level of unity. But not everyone can reach that level. When Mashiach will come, that level of unity will be revealed. But the level of unity we achieve today is the Baruch Shem Kavod Malchus the lower level of unity. The lower level of unity where there is time, there is space, but we come to realize that even the attribute of royalty is also God. God is the light and God is the shield. So it's all God. So even when God created time and space and I and they're, and they're prominent and they're separate, but the truth is they're not really separate. It's all really an expression of the divine. And therefore, we are truly nullified within God. We are truly one with God, inseparable from God. There's no other reality but God. And that gives us the strength to be able, and the courage and the strength to be able to act like a Jew, to do what a Jew needs to do, to worship God, to willingly enter into a relationship with God, to pray with God, to study His Torah, to do mitzvah, to live, to live a Jewish life, to have the strength, the courage, to be able to stand, resist pressures and temptations and do the right thing and make this world, transform the world. Take the physical, material world. Take time and space. Take all the objects of this world and transform it into a holy, a holy world. Reveal godliness. Bring godliness into this world and elevate the world and make it into a godly place. This is the theme of a Jew's life. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Olokeinu, Hashem Echad and Baro Kved Malchus This is the mission statement of a Jew. That's what we say twice a day. A person has to have a clear mission statement. You have to know what your life is all about. Then you have all the details, but you have to have a clarity. This is the clarity. This is a Jew's mission. Shema Yisrael. Our mission is 
to reveal the unity of God. The higher level of unity as well as the lower level of unity. And uh, an example of the higher level of unity you also have in the, just like you have in the Holy of Holies, which is in, t- in space, you also have in time, Shabbos. What is Shabbos? Shabbos is a day, it's space, but it's a day that you transcend time. It's a day that elevates you above the ordinary. It's not ordinary time, it's time, but it's not ordinary time. You're completely elevated to a different dimension. So where time itself becomes elevated, the world itself becomes elevated to a different dimension, where the reality of godliness is, 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 is prevails. It's getting clear. <laughs> it's clearing up. <laughs> well, it's not, you know, that's why we say Shema Yisrael twice a day, and Shema Yisrael means think about it, really understand it, because it's not just a concept that we try to understand intellectually, it's a concept that we really try... Who are we revealing thing. God for? Who are we revealing God for? Like, are we revealing for ourselves or are we revealing for everybody else? Well, the name Adnai, God wanted to be king. So, Lord, Would we make him king yes, for everybody else? He cannot be king for himself. He can't be king without us. Does that mean that the Jew is the, is the middleman between God and the rest of the world? Yes, the Jew is the one who makes God king, yes. Because so revealing God for the sake of everybody else in the world as Yes, well. because to be king, like you said earlier... Yes, we make God king of the universe. That's why the God of the Jew is the God of the world. But it's not just for our benefit personally. It's for the benefit no. of all humanity. Absolutely. When, when God is king of the world, then the whole world is, is, is a good place. Uh, but it's up to the Jew to coronate God as king of the universe. Not the angels. Not angels. And not the 70 nations of the world. It's up to the Jew to coronate God as the king of the universe. That's the analogy I said earlier. King... Who can coronate the king? On one hand, you can't have your children can't coronate you as king. You can't coronate yourself as king, and you can't even have your ministers coronate you as king. You can't be a king over ministers. <laughs> Everyone is a minister. That does not a kingdom make. Um, but to be a king, you have to be a king over subjects. There has to be a distance. But nevertheless, there has to be some relationship, right? You're not going to be a king over. There's no relationship. You can't be a king over. There has to be some relationship. So a Jew has a piece of the divine essence, but the Jew lives in this world. And we're separate from God. We're human beings. We're separate from God. So we're separate, but we're connected. We are the subjects. The angels are like the ministers. They live in the palace. The rest of the world is not really connected. The Jew has that inner connection, but at the same time we are subjects. We are separate. And we have the freedom of choice. If we use the Yiddish cup, the Yiddish wisdom, to open our eyes and remove our blinders and open up ourselves to the reality of Hashem and allow that reality to emerge and allow that reality to permeate our lives and that relationship and that total marriage and relationship, and um, then we coronate God as King of the Universe. That's what we do in Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, the Jew blows the shofar, the Jew, make, the Jew comes to Shor Rosh Hashanah. No one else in the world, the Jew comes to Shor Rosh Hashanah. Because the Jew coronates God as king of the universe. And when God is king of the universe, then the year is a blessed year for the whole world. The whole world is blessed. The angels are blessed. All 70 nations are blessed. Talmud says if the nations of the world knew how much the temple did for them, they would have surrounded the temple and not allowed 
not allowed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy it, not allowed Rome to destroy it, Titus to destroy it. Because when the Jew is connected, and we coronate God as king of the universe, then the whole world, God becomes king of the world. The whole world becomes blessed. And the whole world becomes connected. And the whole world senses the reality of God. And that's the reality of Mashiach. Mashiach will come. That's when the nations of the world will accept God as, 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 as their sovereign. And uh, the Jew will be the light unto the nation. The Jew will be the prophet. He should be a nation of prophets, of priests. Our mission is to, um, we were charged with a mission to connect the world and to teach the world. And Israel will become the center of the world. Jerusalem will become the capital of the world. The temple will become the White House, spiritual White House of the world. And Mashiach and the Jewish people will become the spiritual nerve center and the spiritual teachers and guides of the entire world of six billion people, all 70 nations. That is the reality of Mashiach. So that's our responsibility. And the non-Jews don't let us forget our responsibility. Because they know that this is our mission. And if we try to forget and assimilate and try to you know, hide or run away or we forget our mission, um, they remind us. And they remind us they very sharply sometimes because they won't let us forget. Because they will not be whole. They cannot be whole. The world cannot be whole until the Jew, till we get our act together. It's only when we coronate Hashem as king of the universe, as our personal king. You teach by personal example. When Hashem is my king, and I am subject to Hashem in my personal life, I am willing to do what Hashem asks of me. I am willing to take that discipline. And when you teach by personal example, then the Shekhinah is on your face. Then the divine Shekhinah presence is on your face and the world sees it and then the world becomes a blessed place a wholesome place to be continued like in the times of King Solomon right very good right right the whole world was attracted that was a taste of Mashiach we got a little slice a little a teaser a little taste a glimpse Lessons in Tanya Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.